1: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Therner. Today I will be speaking with Professor Katie Daygood about her new book, Bring the World to the Child, Technologies of Global Citizenship in American Education, out this year from MIT Press. Now this timely book examines the early history of the use of media technologies in K-12 education in the first half of the 20th century. Bring the World to the Child illustrates that many of the same pedagogical ambitions and challenges we deal with today with online and computer-assisted education, especially now in the age of pandemic, have deep historical roots that can inform how we understand and approach education technology in the present. Now, without further ado, I give you my interview with Professor Katie Daygood. Uh, Well, Katie, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society.
0: Hi, Lance. Thanks for having me.
1: So I uh, absolutely love this book, and especially as an educator who attempts to use so much uh, technology in my own classroom for various reasons and, and purposes, it's been an inc- incredibly valuable to uh, read this history and consider what it really means for um, our educational environments today. I'm wondering how you came around to this project and uh, and your intellectual trajectory that brought you here.
0: Sure. Um, well, I'm glad that you found it useful to you as an educator, because um, I actually embarked on this project before I was an educator myself. Um, I was more interested in studying educational media as a former user of it. Um, some of my earliest media memories as a child were with different kinds of educational media in my life, Uh, grainy films and film strips that were shown in my classrooms, and um, later the arrival of our family's first personal computer to our house in the mid-90s, and especially Microsoft Encarta, which was this this, uh, interactive encyclopedia uh, that very much had a kind of worldly techno-utopian vibe. I don't know if you used that program growing up, but um, I just became sort of interested in I mean, it's probably a product of the time that I was raised in, in the sort of techno-utopianism of the 90s, very interested in how our educational devices um, came, became so ubiquitous um, in U.S. schools and became so associated with very utopian ideals of um, sort of rearing children um, with a world-minded sensibility, um, preparing children for participation and leadership in a global knowledge economy um, so I just wanted to, to probe deeper into those ideas and associations. Um, and so uh, in terms of my academic formation, I um, got my Ph.D. at Northwestern in an interdisciplinary program called Media, Technology and Society. And um, I'm very interested in the intersection of those three things, um, especially how they shape education and the experience of everyday life. Um, and I'm a historian of technology and a critical cultural scholar of media and communication. So I'm approaching this history of education and history of educational media project from a standpoint of interest in um, how our our technologies, our tools, our devices, our media, and our representations operate uh, in the classroom. Um, and, you know, historians of technology are generally interested in how, devices become sort of freighted with social values, right? So how new tools and techniques and devices, especially in moments of emergence, uh, become associated with ideas of social progress and things like that. And so I wanted to study how educational media became associated with uh, some of these sort of promising um, ideas of a more connected and peaceful planet.
1: You write that the use of this kind of educational technology really came out of the progressive movement and the progressive moment in education. Can you explain how progressive values of education began to be attached to the use of new technologies, especially visual and sensorial technologies in the classroom?
0: Sure. So it's interesting that the rise of the progressive education movement corresponded with the explosion of new media in U.S. society. Um, and so while these were sort of separate developments, they they very much converged and formed a big part of the story in this book. Um, progressive educators were interested in uh, moving beyond the sort of 19th century model of rote verbalistic instruction, right? the idea of children kind of reciting back knowledge that had been poured into them by teachers Um, and not doing any kind of critical engagement or activity in the classroom. Um, And so progressive educators wanted to move past this regimented idea. They wanted to create at the turn of the 20th century, so we're talking late 1880s, early 1900s, they had these visions of creating these more dynamic, um, active spaces of learning. And this coincided with the um, construction of very large public schools, the proliferation of public schools, in uh, the U.S., the construction of these uh, very palatial um, brick-and-mortar public school buildings that included all kinds of new spaces to facilitate new activities like auditoriums and science labs and art spaces and libraries and playgrounds and things like that. And part of their consideration was how to incorporate the new media of the era into this project of making education more engaging, uh, making it more efficient as well. There was a real uh, sensibility of of efficiency here too, and so media producers, uh, the sort of new media producers of that time, the producers of motion pictures, of lantern slides, of stereoscopes and stereographs, the um, what would become a rising educational media juggernaut, the National Geographic Society, all saw an opportunity to sell their products in schools. Because media producers could provide this vaunted ideal of experience to uh, st- to schools and to students. Progressive educators were very concerned about experience. They were concerned about these urban kids, right? So this was a time of massive urbanization and immigration to the United States. The progressive educational system, or just the educational system in general, was headed up by Protestant, uh, white, native-born Educators And they had real anxiety about maintaining the dominance of uh, sort of the Anglo-American character of the country. And they um, also had real anxiety that these poor and immigrant children were not experienced enough, uh, did not know enough about the world, did not know enough about the nation to fulfill their duties as citizens so there became a real conversation about and this is what sort of the, the the central argument of the book is a real conversation about how to teach good citizenship in the schoolroom and many educators landed on the idea that new media could do that work so it was a happy alliance between although an uneasy alliance at times between the era's new media producers these burgeoning film and eventually radio uh, industries and visual media industries And progressive reformers, educators, social workers, and administrators, and eventually researchers as well, all kind of deciding that new media could do this job of bringing the world to the American student and forging this new 20th century citizenship that would be at once very world aware, aware of what was going on in the international world, and very nationalistic, (laughs) very uh, patriotic, loyally American. Uh, and so on.
1: yeah, yeah, I want to read a, a quick quote from the introduction of the book, uh, where you uh, bring this around to uh, both the ways that uh, this idea of global citizenship is uh, worldly but also nationalistic and uh, at times uh, reinforces the the system of white supremacy in the mm-hmm. United States. So you're right. And ed- for educators and reformers throughout the twentieth century, World citizens could, through well-meaning practices of mediated encounter, learning, and intercultural exchange, transcend the legacies of racism, imperialism, nationalism, and uh, power inequalities without having to systematically grapple with them. And I'm wondering about that final phrase here, about how these uh, technologies allow in the classroom to uh, imagine and to enact uh, a certain ideal or utopian notion of transcending imperialism and racism uh, while at the same time not actually confronting these
0: mm. yeah, so what the ideal of world citizenship that educators began to promote, and this really began to take off after World War one right when Americans realized that um you know what they feared to be Americans um geographic illiteracy, um, as well as sort of what they called national hatreds. So the, the, uh, um, interethnic antipathy that existed within the United States among various immigrant groups was leading Americans to be ill-prepared for understanding global conflicts and preventing the next war. And what educators, but educators had to walk a fine line. So these, this, these, uh, this group of world-minded teaching advocates, um, had to be wary of um, the public school watchdogs, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, eventually the American Legion and other groups that closely monitored schools, textbooks, teachers for any kind of activity that might smack of un-Americanism, that might smack of communism, um, and uh, that might seem to be awarding too much respect to or rights to racial and ethnic minorities and people of color. So the uh, teachers who were in charge of creating a world-minded curriculum and using media in that task had to walk this fine line where they wanted to promote world citizenship and international understanding, uh, brotherhood of man, the appreciation of uh, of national and cultural differences, while not um, challenging in any way the supremacy of the white middle class uh, Anglo-American subject. So what you saw in the end was these sorts of media, and I can give you one example of pageants. Um, so one argument of the book is that in looking at educational media, we need to not just look at mass media and film and radio and things like that. We need to look at the grassroots media that teachers and students made on their own. And that was often what was easier to, to engage in the classroom, and more available to them. Um, and pageants were a very widely used device for teaching. Uh, the idea of peace education in schools, but also presenting a program of assimilation. And in these pageants, um, you, I talk about one, for example, in the Upper Peninsula of Mich- Michigan um, that was held in 1917, uh, in the spring of 1917, as the U.S. was entering the First World War. And um, the, what the pageant presented was this sort of parade of nations, but the view of Internationalism that was presented was entirely Eurocentric, with the exception of presenting uh, Japanese culture as well or some Asian cultures. Um, but it involved children dressing up in folkloric garb of various immigrant groups, singing songs. Um, there was a sort of stereotypical litany of um, uh, immigrant traits that were celebrated, like the idea of the thrift of the Germans and the musicality of the Russians and. Uh, the gaiety of the Irish and so on that was seen as, as international understanding at the time. And then it culminated in the appearance of uh, in this case, a character known as called education and a character of uncle Sam. Um, And these were always played by, excuse me. These were always played by uh, white children, right? And they represented the personification of America. And this was a very common pageant device where a a white child in the role of Columbia or Uncle Sam would appear um, in sort of this peaceful resolution of the and this peaceful embrace of an all consuming embrace of um, these different ethnic groups, which and of course, this representation of ethnic difference and racial difference was very, very limited and circumscribed to begin with. It was just focusing, primarily focusing on nations of Europe. It completely excluded African-Americans, Latinos um, and had a very limited view of Asian identity as well. Um, and then it just sort of presented this idea of America embracing these, uh, cultural differences. And it kind of suggested in the end that America was the consummate, um, uh, sort of democracy. It was the most exceptional place in the world because it was a place where all of these groups could find welcoming shores and pageants really presented this idea that the United States, um, with based on this myth of harmonious cooperation between cultural groups, um, was a model of multiculturalism and pluralistic democracy for the rest of the world to follow. So you not only saw in these educational media a real erasure and exclusion of uh, many of its own cultural groups, you also saw the presentation of a uh, real mythology uh, that the United States was already um, a, a sort of a pioneer in cooperation among people of different nations. And then you saw this desire to kind of export that model in this moment of real geopolitical global conflict in the midst of the world wars, export this model to the rest of the world. And so you saw the the, the real cultivation of American exceptionalism in these kinds of educational performances and media.
1: Yeah. And can you talk a little bit then to to build off of that about how these different media were targeted towards different populations of students within the United States and in US territories beyond the the continent? Mm.
0: Well, unfortunately, the because the the texts that I was looking at were primarily in this sort of mainstream educational public school domain, they were very limited to begin with in privileging the voices of white educators and imagining the benefits for white students. Um, there was a, because of the segregation of the school system at the time, this was before the Brown versus Board of Education era, um, schools were overwhelmingly segregated um, and educational innovations and innovations around technology and theorizations of what proper use of educational media and technology should look like were happening in the space of white schools and were imagined for the benefit of white students. So that is something that I talk about in the, especially in the beginning of the book that. Um, this idea of world citizenship was already uh, grossly limited to begin with, in that it was imagined as a, a new kind of civic sensibility that was really only appropriate for and developed for white children. Later at the end of the book, I talk about after World War II, when AV education became a big field on its own. So the sort you know, the, the, The World War II story that I tell in the book is really the visual visual education movement just getting off the ground. But after World War II, you saw the real professionalization of AV. You saw a huge expansion of the profession, um, aided largely uh, in large part by this return of technologists who had been trained in wartime. Um, And of course, the explosion of of new media, of television, of more portable and easily usable um, AV devices in society. Um, so, uh, but at this time in the post war moment um, and in the post Brown v. Board moment eventually, uh, and in the Cold War moment, then you saw the educational technology world grappling a bit more with how technology could be used in uh, low income and communities of color in the United States. And the differences were really stark. And this is one new direction that I look forward to scholarship developing more. Um, It's kind of an open question posed at the end of the book, but you saw a real divergence in terms of um, the idea that technology for white schools and for white affluent children um, should be a tool that should be used sparingly, should be used in a limited way. And chapter three of the book explores the foundations of this, how educators began to push back on the idea of um, technology being used too much in the classroom, being relied on too passively, and they for- forged this idea of kind of critical media literacy as early as the teens, 20s and 30s. So for, for white students, by, by the post-war moment, it was understood that there was sort of li- that limited engagement was best, um, at least an, an emergent sensibility of that. Um, Meanwhile, for black and brown schools and for U.S. colonial schools. So a prominent example of this is um, in the unincorporated territory of U.S. Samoa in 1965. Um, For these children, television, for example, could be the teacher. Right. So there was a real, in the eyes of of white educational AV experts, sensibility that for these groups that had been left behind, um, that technology could be the teacher and could be much more relied upon. So you see real divergence in thinking based on race in terms of the proper uses of technology. And that's a real unresolved inequality in the educational technology space to this day. You know, we're speaking right now in the moment of this global pandemic where uh, school has been closed or brick and mortar buildings have been closed now for uh, over five months. And it looks like they will not reopen, at least in the United States, in the coming term. And there are vast educational inequities emerging um, in terms of um, who is going to be stuck in front of a screen all day with poor and low income and predominantly uh, black and brown children being more at risk of having a sort of today's version of a television teacher. um, You know, these day long Zoom sessions um, or not even having access to the technology to begin with and whiter, more affluent Uh, groups, groups of white and affluent, more affluent children are seeing being organized into these de facto um, neighborhood schoolhouses where parents might be able to hire a teacher or a tutor and limit that amount of technology, limit that amount of sitting in front of the screen. So I see a real disturbing parallel between the past and present in terms of the energy poured into using technology in in the most effective ways um, and where those efforts have been directed uh, based on the, the the demographic makeup of school communities.
1: You know, as I think, um, you know, then back again to the pre world war II era and in many ways the age sounds so familiar to us today in which there's these large media companies uh, educational reformers and government agencies all promoting the use of these new technologies within the classroom and I'm wondering how teachers adapted and uh, reacted to this
0: yeah so that's a really interesting question um, for a while there when educational media companies uh, in the Early teens and 20s were uh, really promoting their devices um, in ed- new educational journals and going to educational conferences. There was quite a bit of agreement between uh, these companies and educators in terms of some of the value of educational technology, right? So, um, and this is, there were lots of justificational discourses that companies used to prove the worth of these technologies for education. They had a real uh, big job to do because many of these devices were in the popular imagination associated with leisure and entertainment, right? So um, making a film worthy for instruction in the classroom after most Americans associated it with the Nickelodeon um, was a big job. And Educators and media companies kind of converged on a couple of shared discourses. And the one that I focus on is this idea that technology could bring the world to the child. Educators had some reservations about films being educationally inadequate, um, being inappropriate, being difficult to incorporate into their lessons and so on. But one thing educators really echoed back uh, in, the, in the industrial trade literature at conferences and things and in their own conversations was this idea that technology could, these visual media could at least bring a new vision of the world into the classroom. And some educators even said, um, for example, um, one educator who headed up the Los Angeles School Department of Visual Education in the 20s, um, she even wrote in Educational Screen, which was the sort of trade publication for visual educators, That uh, even the films that have no educational value whatsoever, um, especially uh, travelogues, which were often fraught with racial and ethnic stereotypes, um, even these sort of trashy, uh, cheap (laughs) um, films uh, could still have some value in at least uh, being adventuresome for students or at least giving them a different view. So you saw this kind of problematic bargain being made um, from the beginning, that some worldly media was better than none, and that opened the door for a lot of problematic devices to enter into the classroom. Um, but what educators began to do was they uh, became so concerned after time with uh, the commercialism of uh, various technology companies, particularly the motion picture industry, trying to wedge its way into schools, that they started developing their own pedagogical frameworks um, for how to properly use technology in the classroom. And I argue this was a a big early step in critical media literacy education. Um, so educators began to, uh, champion multiple media, the use of multiple media rather than just relying on a single device. So that was an attempt to knock down motion pictures from this pedestal that the industry had elevated them to, um, they began to promote audiovisual rather than just visual education. So they began to make a pedagogical argument for the importance of multisensory learning. And this goes back again to that idea of progressive um, educational theory uh, that we talked about at the beginning. Educators really had to keep reminding themselves in the midst of this real swirl of hype about new devices, especially movies, that hey, education is a multisensory endeavor. It's an active endeavor. We can't just bring these machines. Into the classroom and stick kids in front of a, of a screen, right? We need to engage all of their faculties and sensibilities. So, educators begin to develop these frameworks for that. Um, a big leader in that movement was Edgar Dale. He was an early uh, sort of pioneer of uh, critical media literacy, and he developed this framework called the Cone of Experience. Uh, he developed it in, in the mid 1940s, but it was the culmination of a lot of his thinking going back to the 1920s as an educator and eventually an educational researcher. And the cone of experience was sort of like a food pyramid um, schema, uh, but for educational media. And so it recommended to teachers that all schools and students should have a broad base at the bottom of this pyramid of um, educate, of, of active experience, right? of field trips, of pageants, of making, of doing uh, things. And then you can kind of move up the pyramid and move into more Verbalistic and more abstract experiences like the kind that are offered by the era's new media, like film or like radio or like records. So, his idea was that these mediated experiences, while vital and while inescapable for the modern subject, needed to be used sparingly and they always needed to be anchored in this range of educational experience that could only be offered in the schoolroom. And this was to try to tie all this together, this was an act of professional self preservation for teachers, right? All of this pushback against um, the use of sort of corporate and consumer technologies in the classroom was also their attempt as educators to reassert their relevance and their indispensability as teachers in this time of technological change. Um, I talk about Thomas Edison in the book, who was this real, you can kind of think of him as like the Mark Zuckerberg of his time and that he was a huge booster of technology. He was of course an inventor of multiple hugely influential technologies But he was a big booster of educational film and he made headlines in the teens and 20s um, saying movies were going to revolutionize education. They were going to remove the need for teachers. They were going to shoulder the work of teaching. They were going to replace textbooks. And these headlines got, of course, uncritically reproduced all over the place in the press. And so teachers realized they needed to make an argument for themselves uh, in a world in which technology would be here to stay. And so I argue in the book that we need to look back to those early conversations to look at the promise and the problems of teachers' um, discourses about how to properly use technology in a pedagogical way.
1: Yeah, and, and it seems, as I read the book, that at the same time, as teachers are asserting their relevance, they're also bringing more and more let's say, uh, non-technological things into the classroom. And you talk about the use of uh, museums on wheels and um, the example of the St. Louis Educational Museum, I believe it's called. Uh, how do these fit into this larger vision of the technology technologicalization of education?
0: Yeah, so the St. Louis Educational Museum is sometimes called the catalyst for the visual education movement. It started in 1904. And in a real interesting sign of how close the ideal of world citizenship was and uh, American empire was to the idea of educational technology, this St. Louis Educational Museum was formed with objects left over from this 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. So there were World's Fair origins to this first major uh, innovation in educational technology. And what it was, was it was a collection of Objects and media, so artifacts, costumes, food samples, industrial samples, and the new media, um, phonograph records, early motion pictures, books, photographs, lantern slides, stereographs, and stereoscopes. It was this huge collection that the St. Louis school system Built and assembled with a mix of World Fair materials and also donations from other natural history museums around the country. And this was part of a movement. The school museum movement was emerging in cities across the country. There was a, a school museum program in Chicago and Philadelphia and in other places in New York at the American Museum of Natural History. And what this movement's idea was was that museums, which of course were growing and becoming a, a kind of a big deal around the same time that the US public school system was. And with this ethos of educating and uplifting these large urbanizing and largely immigrant urban populations. Um, And so the school museum extended that museum ethos into the public school system. It said, we're going to loan these museum materials to the area schools in St. Louis. And so the the St. Louis Educational Museum was sometimes called the Museum on Wheels. It was first a horse-drawn cart, and then later it was a fleet of trucks. And it moved tons. I mean, like tens of thousands of um, educational artifacts and pieces of media into schools for students to interact with. And this was, I argue, sort of the, the ultimate educational technology. And it forces us to rethink um, this idea that the history of educational technology is a tidy timeline of, of progress and of one machine entering education after another. Um, you know, When we think back on the history of technology, we tend to think, oh, it was it was, it was textbooks, and then it was stereoscopes, and then it was motion pictures, and then it was radio. No, it was a big, messy mix from the start. And the St. Louis Educational Museum, which you can see pictures of in my book, exemplifies that. Um, teachers love to show these pictures and educational journals of kids just surrounded by artifacts, um, engaging with different materials. And of course, The issues of race and imperialism and white supremacy that I talk about throughout the book are also evident here because the image that I show is of children playing Indian. It was an exhibit that the St. Louis Educational Museum offered um, called A Workshop on Indian Life, and it involved children um, essentially dressing up as and playing Indian and engaging with uh, indigenous artifacts that were left over from the World's Fair and um, sort of re-inscribing and learning through all of their senses and through their sensorium, this very circumscribed and stereotypical and reductive vision of indigenous life and being encouraged in the educational materials and the curricular materials to contemplate their own state of civilization. This was a, 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 an objective of uh, the lesson plan was that these, these urban kids would learn to contemplate essentially how far the West had come and how far the United States had come by engaging in this sensorial way with uh, indigenous objects and costumes. So that is a, a, for me, a very telling and revealing educational technology that emerged right at the beginning of this movement in the early 20th century.
1: That is such a fascinating episode in this book. That concludes most of my questions. Are there other aspects of the book that you want to make sure are present on this interview for listeners?
0: One chapter that we didn't get uh, to talking about, but that um, I hope will be useful to both historians of education and scholars of media and communication is the chapter on kids' international exchanges of media. Um, so it's called Pen Pals and Messenger Dolls, The Rise of Mediated Intercultural Exchange. And that chapter, it, it comes at the end of the book, and it looks at how after these earlier examples of kids using media in the classroom and making media in the classroom, um, They also exchanged media uh, on an international scale with peers in different countries. So that chapter looks at the rise of the pen pal movement. It looks at the rise of the Junior Red Cross scrapbook exchange, which involved tens of thousands of children swapping homemade scrapbooks with peers in different countries. Um, It also looks at the exchange of kids exchanging um, radio messages of peace and goodwill over the new medium of the radio, and also um, dolls, toys, and other tokens of friendship through A peace education program. And what I hope to do in that chapter is uh, show how long before the internet and long before computers, kids were already being trained in sort of virtual exchange and networked exchange and global exchange and communication. And this was very much cast as a kind of junior diplomacy, as forming world citizens who could actually do the work of the state in um, helping to manage geopolitical relations. Um, so that's another part of the book that I think all of it together, I hope sort of shows that this history of global and connected technology in the classroom, which we talk about so much today uh, as being a present thing, as being a thing that's kind of emerging from this moment of the internet and of digital technology. I try to show throughout that these ideas are very old and we've been down this road before and we can learn from the steps that we've walked and the mistakes that we've made in the past to forge a more equitable and just educational media landscape moving forward.
1: That's, uh, that's very well put. Um, so, Katie, what are you working on next?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so my next steps are pivoting to the present. Um, as I mentioned with the book, I think it opens up a lot of interesting questions about um where educational media is headed, how educational media can be used in more critical ways, particularly as we think about it as a technology of citizenship. And um, so what I'm doing now is I'm looking at the pedagogical dimensions of social media. Um, I'm interested in social media activity and social media uh, creative work as an informal educational technology. So There's a lot of study on how educational technology is used in schools. There's a lot of study of how social media is used outside of school frameworks. Um, But I want to understand how our informal everyday social media use outside of the classroom and alongside the classroom is a sort of space of lifelong learning. Um, And thinking about uh, social media as an informal educational technology and a social educational technology um, another project that I'm looking at is how high school and college students are using social media to engage in ed- educational activism. So how they're pushing for um, both institutional and curricular reforms in their schools uh, through social media, through TikTok, through Instagram posts, through tweets, um, and how they're they're uh, pushing for more equitable kinds of curriculum um, for more equitable uh, institutional practices through, these social media platforms that we tend to think of as being primarily for, for socializing purposes. I think there's really important educational uh, and educational activist work happening there. So that's what I'm looking at now.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. I really look forward to reading that when that comes out. Uh, well, Katie, thank you so much for your time and, um, and for writing this incredible um, and informative and uh, challenging book.
0: Thank you so much, Lance. It was great to talk to you.